You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. Paths of Glory, which came out in 1957 and was directed by Stanley Kubrick. It stars Kirk Douglas, Ralph Meeker, Adolphe Menjou, George McCready, Wayne Morris, and Timothy Carey. The genre would be war slash courtroom drama. Colonel, your regiment is going to take the anthill tomorrow. It's the key to the whole German position in this sector. More than half my men will be killed. Yes, it's a terrible price to pay, Colonel. But we will have the anthill. General Court Marshal, these men are charged with cowardice in the face of the enemy. If those little sweethearts won't face German bullets, they'll face French ones. To find these men guilty will be a crime to haunt each of you to the day you die. Therefore, I humbly beg you, show mercy to these men. This was a first-time watch for me, as the furthest back I had gone into Stanley Kubrick's filmography had been Spartacus. This was actually the film he directed before that one, and his third overall. And wow, I cannot believe he was able to craft such an initially visceral, and then finally a pretty incendiary war drama that feels very much ahead of its time, and during the latter days of the Hayes Code, no less. This is before the MPAA rating system took place in the 60s. This is really next-level storytelling, which packs an impressive amount of intrigue and intensity into barely 90 minutes of screen time. Of course, it came from Stanley Kubrick, even before he became, quote, Stanley Kubrick. It takes place during the Great War, World War I, and stars Kirk Douglas as French Colonel Dax. Yes, he still sounds American, as do most of the rest of the cast, with a few British accents thrown in for good measure. But no matter, he has been tasked with leading his platoon of soldiers into no man's land to finally take a critical piece of land known as the, quote, Ant Hill. We learn during introductory scenes watching higher officials in the French command that while this area does have strategic importance, there is now a sudden urgency to take it, no matter the immediate human cost, handed down from commander to general to colonel, just because. What sort of casualties do you anticipate, sir? Mm, say 5% killed by our own barrage. That's a very generous allowance. 10% more going through no man's land and 20% more getting into the wire. That leaves 65%, with the worst part of the job over. Let's say another 25% in actually taking the anthill. We're still left with a force more than adequate to hold it. General, you're saying that more than half my men will be killed. Yes, it's a terrible price to pay, Colonel. But we will have the anthill. But will we, sir? We are shown two exchanges where we see officers asked to do so, initially raising objections based on the fact that there has been a stalemate on the front for several months, and the men on the front lines are currently exhausted, with many still recovering from recent combat. But in both cases, the officers then eventually accept the order, mainly out of ego and or vanity. We do hear at one point one officer declaring to another 
the following in response to these orders. Samuel Johnson. All right, now what did he have to say about patriotism? He said it was the last refuge of a scoundrel, sir. Yep, from the get-go, Kubrick is demonstrating an enormous amount of cynicism in the military, which was pretty unheard of at the time in mainstream cinema. This was still seven years before he would give us Dr. Strangelove, mind you. Of course, that cynicism eventually gives way to indignation as we watch Douglas's Dax valiantly lead his men through the front against a punishing barrage of gunfire and mortars to no avail before they are pretty much stopped in their tracks as many die. Many fall back and are then ordered to be shot by their own sentries by Dax's immediate superior to prevent them from further retreat. That immediate superior is General Mirieu, played to super smug effect by George McCready. General Battery Commander respectfully reports he cannot execute such an order unless it is in writing and signed by the General. Give me that phone. Yes, sir. General Miro is speaking. Battery Commander speaking, sir. The troops are mutinying, refusing to advance. Fire as ordered until further notice. With all respect, sir, you have no right to order me to shoot down my own men. Perhaps you are willing to take full and undivided responsibility for it. Captain Russo, are you going to obey my order? I must have a written order before I can execute such a command, sir. Supposing you're killed, then where will I be? You'll be in front of a firing squad tomorrow morning. That's where you'll be. Hand over your command and report yourself under arrest to my headquarters. Now, of course, those orders to shoot their own are not carried out, but the damage has already been done. Hundreds of men have died, and they have failed to take their prized anthill. To the extreme anger of Mirieux, who then orders several of them to be executed for, quote, cowardice in the face of the enemy. A few men are selected for execution, and Dax has taken it upon himself to defend them against these charges, as he was an attorney before the war. And from there, the film becomes a very compelling courtroom drama, and Douglas pretty much shines in those scenes as well. The attack yesterday morning was no state of the honor of France. And certainly no disgrace to the fighting men of this nation. But this court-martial is such a state and such a disgrace. The case made against these men is a mockery of all human justice. Gentlemen of the court, to find these men guilty will be a crime to haunt each of you to the day you die. I can't believe that the noblest impulse of man, his compassion for another, can be completely dead here. Therefore, I humbly beg you, show mercy to these men. He does get to do a couple of monologues for sure, but it never gets histrionic. It doesn't need to. This film does an expert job of showing as opposed to telling. We see the faces of those accused and how utterly terrified they are. Each performance feels pretty natural, especially Timothy Carey playing Private Farol, who is extremely tall but with a hollowed-out face. He's playing a soldier who was selected as one of the scapegoats to be executed because he was deemed socially undesirable, which was obviously an old-school euphemism for something. I can't be quite 100% sure of, but we get the idea. The look of being battered down is all there is in his face. Now, up until this point, I have maybe revealed the first 35 to 40 minutes of the story. And I won't go further except to say that the film moves efficiently, the tension never lets up, and it all ends on a sobering note, though not from where you would expect. And that brings us to the categories. The first category is the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film. 
Now, not to completely spoil the ending of this movie, but let's say that it ends on a surprisingly touching note with the performance of a German folk song on screen by a young German woman portrayed by a young actress, also of German descent, named Suzanne Christian. She and Stanley Kubrick would eventually get married, and she was eventually more publicly known as Christiane Kubrick. The scene starts off in a crowded bar with her being introduced to this raucous crowd of French soldiers as a young pretty face to be mocked for her lack of singing ability. So the scene starts off mostly with hoots and hollers from the crowd. But as they watch her nervously work her way through this song, a cappella, mind you, with increasing confidence, they start to quiet down and then even hum along. You can eventually see more of them become increasingly moved by hearing her, several even eventually starting to get choked up. The translated name of the song performed is called The Faithful Husser, and the original folk song it was based upon actually dates back to the 19th century. From a lyrical standpoint, this song is a ballad about a soldier who has been separated from his loved one and is only allowed to return to her once she has become mortally ill. Yeah, pretty tragic stuff. And it suits the tone and the message of this ending very well. Und als man ihm die Botschaft bracht, dass sein Herzliebchen im Sterben lag, da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Ach, bitte Mutter, bring ein Licht, mein Liebchen stirbt, ich seh es nicht. And that brings us to the next category. The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. To be perfectly honest, this film goes so far back that I'm just not aware of any talent in front of nor behind the camera who seems to be wasted. However, if like myself, you consider yourself to be an avid Kubrick fan and you still have not seen this, then there's still a wasted 88 minutes of time somewhere which you have not spent watching this as of yet. And believe me, I recently learned that myself. And now the next category, which is the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. As would likely be the case with such a seminal film about World War I, there is a sequence early on taking place in No Man's Land, which is quite critical to the story and does not disappoint. The camera follows alongside Douglas as he works his way forward, blowing his whistle, traversing through hills and barbed wire with piercing sounds and explosions all around him and his men. Now, this is not all just one continuous shot. There clearly were not any cameras around at the time which could pull off such a thing. But it sure does feel like it at times, as it's really hard to see any cuts in the action. Obviously, Kubrick had constraints to not show any actual gore. But we certainly get the idea as men are flung around and engulfed in smoke. I have to think that director Sam Mendes was at least a little bit inspired to do what he would do decades later with the movie 1917, which was, in fact, one continuous shot following men along the front in World War I. Still, using 1957 technology, this was probably as close as you could come to such a sequence. 
And now the final category, and that would be MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. To refer to his filmography over 40 years as, quote, groundbreaking would even be an understatement for Stanley Kubrick. But here's one thing that this film has over most other films that he would eventually direct. This is a story that genuinely wears its heart on its sleeve. There's emotion on the screen coming from its characters and the way that they are presented to us. Now, to be fair, pointing out the general coldness of Kubrick's films from Dr. Strangelove onwards, that has been a fairly common criticism. Well, you can't always consider it a real criticism, as that does seem to be his intention much of the time, especially with films like 2001 or A Clockwork Orange, where he seems to be viewing his characters from a somewhat remote, more objective perspective. For those films, that approach really works. But for this one, we really do see things more from the compassionate perspective of Douglas's Colonel Dax. This particular type of war story would just not work otherwise. Beyond that, the film just has a very crisp look and is briskly paced. It often feels quite modern for a film that is more than 60 years old. The uh, tone of it, we had seen other anti-war films, but, you know, made it even more shocking was the nature of the way it was shot. As is most likely the case with pretty much every film that he has directed since this one, including Spartacus, the MVP is obviously Kubrick, who left us back in 1999 and remains one of the greatest directors of all time. Stanley started conceptually at all of his movies, from my point of view, with large primary colored brushstrokes. And he would just like beat out these concepts that were, you know, pretty obvious. When you look at Paths of Glory, every sequence hammers its points home. But within every sequence, the filmmaking is delicate and subtle and gentle almost. My rating for Paths of Glory would be five stars out of five. I consider myself a fan of Kubrick, and I'm at a loss as to why I waited so long to finally see this, but I'm glad I did. It is a truly great anti-war film and among his best. And if you're looking to watch Paths of Glory, it is currently streaming on Prime Video and Roku. And that ends another entrenched review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.